Eula, do you remember the first time you feel like you saw yourself in a TV show or a movie? Mm, no. I mean, for the longest time, I didn't see myself like at all. I went to a pretty white elementary school. So when I was young, I was really into Greece. And uh, do you remember Empire Records? I totally do. Oh, I loved Mark. <laughs> but, you know, as I got older, I actually leaned pretty hard into watching cartoons like Recess and Nickelodeon's The Avatar. Yeah. But, you know, there weren't many black women on TV, let alone one I saw like my kind of strength in. And looking back, it makes sense that I see myself in a make-believe cartoon. What about you? Well, I sure remember when I started getting messages about like how I was supposed to be in the world. So I grew up watching a ton of soap operas, especially this one General Hospital. Do you know General Hospital? I do, but I don't think I've ever seen it. So spoiler alert, it takes place mostly in a hospital. <laughs> okay. um, you know, and the male doctors and the women nurses were having affairs and blackmailing each other and murdering each other. But even through all of that... The men were always ordering the women around. Like, the men were always in charge. Many of the things that we see on television, we kind of subconsciously expect to see reflected in culture. So if our protagonists, the people who are making the decisions and who are in places of power, um, are overwhelmingly white and male, then that becomes the expectation for people who are just walking around in the world. This is Melanie McFarland. She's a TV critic for Salon.com. And she is so right. You know, what we see on the screen, we expect to see in real life. I mean, I guess I'd be lying if I said Richie Rich didn't play a role in me expecting white men to have money. And monocles. Yes. <laughs> so Melanie describes the characters and stories we see on TV as a kind of modern mythology. That these characters and plot lines help us form ideas about what our culture is supposed to be like. Melanie's got all kinds of analysis on what these stories teach us, specifically about power and sexism at work. She'll also tell us where we can find shows and movies that show us a culture we all want, where power isn't just reserved for a small group of us. This is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bynum. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if your hospital chief of staff is a woman. And even if your boss plays drums in his office. Okay, Melanie, so you suggested we talk about a movie that I never, ever, ever would have thought about in terms of a sexist workplace, in part because this workplace is in space. It's the movie Aliens, with Sigourney Weaver as the main character, Ripley. Look, I can see where this is going, but I'm telling you that those things exist. Thank you, Officer Ripley, that will be all. Please, you're not listening to me. Kane, the crew member... Kane, who went into that ship, said he saw thousands of eggs there. Thousands. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it! That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. Oh, my. Oh, my God. I've never seen Alien. Oh, how is it that I'm sitting here? I'm so sorry. That's why I'm so know. by all of that. I'm like, well, I'm afraid of scary stuff. So in my mind, that whole scene would have never happened. In my mind, there's just murder and fear throughout the whole movie. But there's parts that have context. Um, <laughs> so how is this a movie about workplace sexism? Oh, my stars. Let me just start. So Aliens is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'll just tell you a story. When I had my first job and I had my first really frustrating experience at an office with a female boss, by the way, just mm -hmm. to be fair, she would put me through such hell. And 
at that time, I you know, we had VCRs. So, you know, I don't think that we ha- even had a DVD player. But I always, on my VHS, I had it rewound to this part of Aliens. And sorry if this is a no spoiler. <laughs> but at some point, she has to go back for Newt, who's this little girl she finds. You know what? I'm going to interrupt you yes, because yes. now is an ideal time to briefly explain what Aliens is about. Oh, yeah. Right? Especially because, Eula, you've never yeah. seen it before, right? I know there, so, I know there are aliens. Yeah. Okay, so I've got to back up all the way to the beginning. Okay, Eula, let me explain to yes. you the Aliens okay. universe. All right, so there's Alien 1, okay. where you have a bunch of people who are basically the space equivalent of long-haul truckers going through space. Anywho, yeah. I'm not going to go into it, but suffice it to say, an alien gets on board. They're super strong. They have these tails that have like, you know, razor sharp and whip like. And this one alien systematically hunts down the entire crew. Mm. Ripley is the only one to survive. So in the second one, what you're hearing is Ripley giving the report to this company. Yes. Right. That sent them into outer space. And all they can do is blame her for losing the payload. What? What? So here is what how we <laughs> what? get into yes. so here. So let's just so, so here is where my theory that has been just a driving theory for my entire life has been my entire work life. Aliens and the Alien series, at least the ones that had Sigourney Weaver in them, the first three. Sigourney say, Weaver played Ripley. She played okay. Ripley. Mm-hmm. They are a metaphor for a woman in the workplace and specifically <sighs> women slamming against the glass ceiling. Oh. And let me explain. You have a woman who's on a team. The team goes out. The team gets knocked out by this alien. Yeah. She actually defeats the alien. Yeah. You know, leading to the second movie. So, yeah. So, guess what? She wins. Right. Um, and she gets into put into hypersleep. So, the only way that they find her is just like the salvage crew happens to spell, stumble across her. And by then, her entire life has passed by. But, of course, since she's in hypersleep, she hasn't aged. So she goes in front of this company that all they know is that, oh, here's this woman by her. Oh, this is the lost payload. Lots and lots of merchandise lost. Explain to us. And so you hear her. That's what you hear. She's explaining what happened. Right. They don't believe her. The apocalypse is coming. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. So not only do they not reward her for say like, hey, thanks for not bringing this thing back home. No, they punish her. They demote her. Mm. So she's demoted. But then, oh, you know, she tries to warn them. These things are out there. Yeah. But, oh, no, 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 they demote her. And then a few months later, all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock on our door. Uh, remember that thing you tried to warn us about? Yeah, we need you to help us check this out. And we're going <laughs> to tell send you a bud there to the planet that you warned us about with a bunch of Marines, and they're going to be fine. And by the way, on that planet, and they are really, really tough guys. Yeah. With two women, by the way, as part of that Marine team. So Ripley and two other women are there. Mm. It does not go well. No, no. It does not go well. No, it can't. There's yeah. so many. There's like hundreds and hundreds of eggs. Right. Oh, n- more than hundreds. Thousands of eggs. There's a lot of them. Sorry, it's I'm freaking bad. out. There's a ton. Okay, but Ripley also in the middle of being shipped back to Nightmare Planet saves a little girl. I mean, what does that say about who we're supposed to be at our jobs, for God's sake? So she goes, saves Newt, and what is... a bad name. Well, you know, her name is Rebecca, but everyone calls her Newt. 
Okay. Anyway, so she goes and saves Newt. It's a very exciting, very exciting. Uh, by this time, the aliens have, you know, they're just, they pick off most of the Marines and then they get down into small band. They go back there, you know, before they, they, before they have to go back and save Newt, they're trying to escape. And then Newt ends up getting sucked to another. So it actually becomes like this side mission that's basically there to test Ripley to see if she'll go back. Mm. But of course she has to. And by then it's down to her. All the other Marines are either gone or incapacitated. Spoiler alert, you should have seen the movie. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is the part that I always had rewound, ready to go after a bad day of work. Ripley goes, she has very little ammo, but she takes a flamethrower, duct tapes it to a machine gun, takes a bandolero of grenades. It's fabulous. She goes in, she gets Newt, she comes back out, barely makes it out. But on the way, then, the alien queen, mm. the female boss, mm. ends up coming back up to the spaceship. So it's this whole thing of power at the top in the spaceship. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> That's my whole life. <laughs> what was alien. the workplace scenario that you were in where you found comfort watching this? Right. I'm not going to say. I mean, you don't have to <laughs> be specific about it, but like what was going on there where you could come home and watch that scene in Aliens where she goes after the alien queen and you were like, oh, I feel better. Well, let's just put it this way. I was the only woman on a team full of men and the woman who managed that team was a woman. And every single time there was something wrong, she would scream at me. Mm. Oh. And she also wouldn't let me leave the team. Mm. Oh, my God. She sends you back. She she keeps sending you back. So the only way that I could get anywhere would be to leave. Mm -hmm. How'd you quit? (laughs) Not the way Sigourney Weaver did. (laughs) I strapped a (laughs) flamethrower. I just quit. Okay, so this feels like a crazy turn after talking about workplace sexism in space. But Melanie, you also wanted to talk about Mad Men. And honestly, that show feels like it was all about workplace sexism in a white collar office in the 60s. So this scene we're about to hear involves Peggy and Joan, two of the main characters. And they're talking about a meeting where they pitch their own ideas. And everybody, I hope you're sitting down because this will shock you. The men in the room were not super interested in those ideas. I want to burn this place down. I know. They were awful. But at least we got a yes. Mm, mm. Would you have rather had a friendly no? Mm, mm. I don't expect you to understand. Joan, you've never experienced that before. Have you, Peggy? I don't know. You can't have it both ways. You can't dress the way you do. And How do I dress? Look, they didn't take me seriously either. Wow. Mm. That is from an episode, I believe, called Severance. And these are two women who have really kind of reversed situations throughout the series run, and we get to see this. Um, Peggy worked really hard. She insisted and, and pursued what she wanted. She came in as a secretary, but she wanted to be... She wanted to be Don Draper. Yeah. And Don actually really recognized parts of himself in Peggy, and that was an amazing part of the series was their relationship. But in that scene, what you have are two women who are basically turning on each other, and it comes after an incredibly humiliating 
presentation mm-hmm. where they're trying to sell another company on um, producing an ad campaign to compete with another for hosiery to compete with another company that's um, also selling in drugstores. Mm-hmm. And all the men, which is really funny because these all these <laughs> everyone who's there except for them are men. Right. And every single time that they try to get them to take them seriously, the men are making all these sexual, very crude double entendres to the point where one of them leans over the table to Joan and says, why aren't you selling bras? You've got a great figure. Oh, Lord. Mm. What What is hosiery for those people who are like, it's 2018. Mm. <laughs> hose. So there are the these things, things that, that men you, wear all the time. The Pantyhose. That men, that's right. <laughs> they wear them all the time. And Yes. Pantyhose. <laughs> so back in the day, ladies wore them. Um, because back in the day in the office, part of the dress code for women, whether spoken or unspoken, were skirts and yeah. dresses. Mm-hmm. We could not wear pants. And you couldn't actually show your leg either. You though. could not sh- yeah. show your bare legs. So pantyhose <laughs> what a were conundrum. a necessity. Yeah. Wow. Um, but in that scene in the elevator, you have the culmination of this rivalry of these two women who should be allied and eventually become allies. But in that moment, they're so frustrated that the only thing they can do is turn on each other right. and blame each other for things that are out of both of their control. Huh. Yeah. Melanie, I have to say, I mean, I might be the only person at the table who hasn't watched the entire Mad Men series. Oh, my God. I have. To I didn't finish it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> it's fine. You can think less of me for not having watched all of it. But I will say that I feel like one of the very upfront features of Mad Men is exploring at least what sexism You know, we all think it looked like back in the day, right back in the 60s and 70s in a white collar office. So what's surprising to you about how Mad Men looks at workplace sexism? Well, it it is. The thing about Mad Men is that it it is mostly if you look at it, a very male journey. I mean, when we think about Mad Men, we think about Don Draper. It is about deception and illusion, which is all that advertising is supposed to do, right? I mean, Don Draper was himself an advertisement. But then when you look at Peggy and Joan, they're also walking advertisements. Hmm. So if you look at what the series kind of taught us about sexism is that here we have Joan, who isn't always known for her necklace with the pen dripping off of it, very like tailored, um, didn't show a lot of skin, but showed a lot of her figure. She had that very hourglass figure. Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to be Joan. Oh, yes. Um, and then you have Peggy, who when she comes in, almost dresses like one of the things that Joan says, like, stop dressing like a schoolgirl. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not doing yourself any favors in this com- professional world actually start to dress like a woman um but then what does that mean what does it mean to dress like a woman so i think one of the things that it shows us about that era is in a way how far we haven't come okay so now we're going to move from the fun stuff to the less fun stuff what do you do when a tv show or a movie you loved when you were younger turns out to be really messed up Mm. I am specifically thinking about John Hughes movies, right? I mean, those movies kind of showed me it was okay to be a weirdo. But now I watch them as an adult. And I mean, in both Sixteen Candles and The Breakfast Club, there are scenes featuring sexual assault that are basically treated as jokes. Mm. What do we do with shows and movies like that? It's interesting. I had this discussion the other day with somebody about do we just throw out that art? I don't think we do. I think we look at it and not only just not just write it off and say it was a different time look at it and say like, holy crap, I didn't even realize that. I'll case in point, and this is not a feminist film (laughs) at the least, but for whatever reason, a few weeks ago, Revenge of the Nerds was on. Oh man! Mm. 
And that movie did not age well. They all went in the workplace, though. Oh, yeah. They sure did. (laughs) But if you look at that, that is a movie that hinges one of its most comedic moments in this moment of triumph on a sexual assault. Mm. So, I mean, that movie, I wouldn't say like, wow, we should really revive Revenge of the Nerds. You know, probably somebody could and do an actual good job of it considering how nerd culture is so elevated now. Mm. But... I think that in order to do that and do it well and do it in a way that's empowering, in a way you do have to consider the previous art. Yeah. But also <clears throat> consider the era that, that in which that art was made. You know, as much as we think of um, the 80s as being this turning point in terms of, you know, progress and evolution, it really wasn't. <laughs> but then, of course, 20 years from now, there will be people who will looking, be looking back at this era and say, like, wow, this is a really not progressive era. Okay, so there was a lot there that is, shall we say, challenging to grapple with. Yeah. To put it diplomatically. But when we come back after the break, we're going to talk positive and we're going to talk hope. I'm ready. Yeah. Yes, please. Now we're going to talk about shows that help us grow into better human beings. Our producer Kyle recently saw an episode of Grey's Anatomy, and it helped him to understand an issue that black women deal with. The character in the scene is chief of surgery, and she's having a heart attack. She goes to a hospital, and no one believes her, including the intern she's talking with. You could be missing a posterior infarct. Well, my cardio chief told me... I'll be the chief of my own cardio, and I'm telling you what I need is... Here, for a posterior EKG, you want to put leads here and here and here. Turn around. Turn around. Here. She's literally telling the intern who's who's supposed to be treating her what to do there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think about that scene, Melanie? God bless Shonda Rhimes. Right. I mean, <laughs> praise her. I mean, so in all of her shows, you want to talk about someone who, t- who shows every single element in all of its prismatic glory of what it means to be a woman in the workplace, in various workplaces. She's extraordinary at it. But one of the things she does there and in other episodes is that she actually does examine elements of real stories that have to do with race and identity but while making them very much a part of the story. So you can look at that from here's Miranda Bailey being Miranda Bailey, which is she's very determined. She's very demanding. She is very gruff. Um, but she's also a black woman. So at the beginning of that scene, one of the things you see, and she's very much aware of this, that she's going to be taken. I mean, you, you know that this is going to happen. The moment she walks into the hospital, she doesn't just say, can I see a doctor? I'm a doctor. She specifically says, this is my full name. This is my position at this hospital. So they are very aware of who she is, what she does, and her expertise. And so even so, when she says, I think I'm having a heart attack, they still don't take her seriously. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if like, oh, here's this uppity woman coming in here. And she has to take command. But she's also in in a hospital where they don't know her. 
So they treat her pretty much the same as they would treat any other patient. So she isn't Dr. Miranda Bailey in this context. She's another black woman just kind of walking in. Right. And if you hear about, I mean, that's one of the things we talk about with Serena Williams, right? Right. And when you saw the HBO show, you saw, like, there are a number of times when black women, their health does not is not taken as seriously. And they're treated with you know, less dignity and less consideration than their white peers. And you see that there. But if you're just watching Grey's Anatomy, if you don't know those elements, if you don't know the relevance to the real world, then it just becomes an instance of, okay, Miranda is in a situation and she's frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that kind of subversiveness is brilliant, frankly. Mm. Mm. We've talked about a lot of shows where you you sort of have to hold on to the good things despite the context that is not great in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Where do you see hope in the shows that are being made now, in the movies that are being made now? Mm. I see a lot of hope in the fact that women's voices are being taken seriously and the variety of women's voices are being taken seriously. Um, and it's okay to not... Um, neutralize our gender. Um, Case in point, you know, one of the biggest kind of summertime surprises was To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And that's an extraordinary accomplishment because you have, it's a rom-com, it's a team rom-com, but it's a rom-com that features an Asian-American lead. And not only that, she's, you know, her family, she has, you know, a white father and her mother um, has passed away. So it's her and her sisters. Um, but they talk a lot about maintaining their Korean heritage. And as part of that, as part of the courtship that she experiences, as part of that, the guy who's interested in her drives across town to get her this specific Korean yogurt drink that you can only find in one store. Mm. You know, all these kinds of things. Um, I think those things are really important. What about you, Eula? What's a show that's making you happy right now? Oh, I'm, I'm in love with Issa Rae. Mm. Oh my yes, gosh, yes, I love yes. her so much. I love Insecure and I love, I forget the name of her show that was on YouTube. Uh, the Misadventures of Awkward Black yeah, Girl. Yeah, of the Awkward Black Girl because that so much of that was in her workplace too. Yeah. You know, and and working for a nonprofit that's intending to help people of color, yet oh everyone God. that works there is white. And, is, and it's named We Got Y'all. We Got Y'all with a, with a white <sighs> with hand a white holding hand. black But black it's not children. racist because that's Cause it's the, my it's hand. It's racist hand. Because it's, it's, it's the, the woman. Boss. Yeah, she created the hand. It's yeah. her. It's, it's not her racist because it's my hand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but just the dynamics of seeing someone going to work every day and the stress that kind of compounds upon her. And even as she tries to do a really good job in spaces, she's kind of treated again as just like, you know, we could take we could value what she's saying and change things and make things better. Or we could uh, keep doing the thing, things as exactly the way they are and like ignore the fact that she's challenging us. Mm-hmm. But then also the other character, Molly on Insecure, her best friend who works in this very corporate world of um, as a lawyer and the challenges that she faces around sexism and class and racism in all these spaces. Um, and then now she's working in an all black space. And having to deal with the sexism is coming at her now, right? So before there was racism because it's like, yeah, she's a young black girl, who knows? And now it's, well, now she's just a young girl in these spaces. And they're unsure of how to like, how she's unsure how to climb a ladder there because men seem to be, you know, it's a boys club and she's experiencing that. So I'm just really in love with Insecure. And I'm, I'm really grateful for Issa Rae. She's really challenging um, a lot of people because of how she's created such a beautiful platform. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things too is she gets a different person of color to produce every show, maybe, right? And mm-hmm. she talks about how she gets those people to first do YouTube shows for her because 
they won't allow for her to just come like to just pick people. She can't just say, oh, Eula's a great writer. She's going to be the best one. They're, they go, what, what work has she done before? And then she has to say, no work. She's a black woman. Right. And so then now she's created this loophole where she goes, oh, she did. She wrote this episode for me on YouTube. And you love that episode. So now that you have that credential. OK, but this raises a really important question. I mean, what's at stake if we don't see all kinds of people in TV and movies? Yes, on TV and in the movies, but also making those stories. These stories matter because when you start, when you only reflect one point of view about culture out into the population, then that affirms or reaffirms certain problems. So if you reflect, as it did in the 50s and 60s, that America is an entirely white nation, then the complete, you know, then the mainstream culture decides, well, we belong here and you don't. Mm. So one of the things that J.J. Abrams said about Lost is that he didn't cast because it's like, oh, I'm going to have an, an Asian person. I'm going to have a Southeast Asian. He said, I just wanted to cast what, what an airplane would look like. An airplane would be filled with people from all different mm. cultures, all different backgrounds. And if they crashed, then all that comes to the island, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of what makes that important. So for people who don't watch TV, that's still no excuse because every streaming service can come up on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to see a feminist show on your phone, watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which, by the way, is written by a husband-wife team. Mm-hmm. Or Steven Universe. <laughs> or Steven Universe. This is the yeah. show that gives me hope, is Steven mm-hmm. Universe. Oh, yeah. Yes. Non-binary characters. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea of conquering through feeling. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the weird, the amazing exploration of believing deeply in your mission Mm. Plus created by a woman, the first Cartoon Network series created by a woman. This was like the best. This was, I mean, yeah, this was like the Beowulf of segments. We covered so many different things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Melanie McFarland, TV critic, writer for Salon, can be found at Mick Television on Twitter. Genius person. Thank you so much for talking with us about all this today. Blowing my mind over and over again. Yes. Thank you for having me. Watch Aliens, darn it. <laughs> all the lights Goodness. on. With I know. All the lights on first thing in the morning. I'll watch Aliens with you, Eula. Mm. It's okay. good. You can hold me too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. This episode was produced by Kyle Norris and edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Special thanks to Jim Gates. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. I'm Jeannie Yandel. Eula Scott Bino is not with us in the studio today. But keep up the good fight. You'll hear us next time. Hi, wonderful listeners. It's Jeannie here. And this is our last episode for season one of Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. And Here at BTSW World Headquarters, we're going to take a little break. There is so much more we want to do on this show, and we need a little time to figure out how to do it. But also, we really, really want to hear from you as we start that work. Yes, we definitely want to know what you liked about season one, but more importantly, we want to know what you didn't like. What do you wish we did more of? What can we do better? Email us at btsw at kuow.org or tweet us or message us on Instagram at btswpodcast. And if you haven't yet, join the BTSW Podcast Facebook group. 
Eula and I are there a lot, and so are a big community of whip-smart, badass listeners who are sharing their own stories and tactics for sexist workplaces. And lastly, and this is going to be a little mushy, but Eula and I have talked a lot about the amazing community that's grown around this show. Thank you all so much for writing us, for telling us your stories about work, for telling us how you've used tactics from this show. We love you all, and we really hope to be back here with you soon.